0: on the record on, on new Yes, good morning. This is Kieran Goodie with you until one o'clock with News Talks on the Record. If you want to contact the program, you can send me a text 53106, That will cost you thirty cent, or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goodie. We have lots coming up on the program today, but starting with our panel, we've been going through some of the stories in the Sunday newspapers. Are joined by Gavin Riley, Virgin Political Correspondent. <laughs> That's not old. Yet, I was
1: is wondering it? how long it would take for that bomb to drop. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Sheila Riley, no relation, head of digital with iconic news regional newspaper group and former editor of the Longford Leader. Leader and Michael Nugent. Uh, Chairman of Atheist Ireland amongst many other things. You're all very welcome to the programme. There's so many hats being thrown in the ring I should ask. No one here is running for president yet. We haven't.
2: Michael, have you a few people asking you should you Uh, run? Well, unfortunately I can't because you have to swear a religious oath. So a conscientious atheist cannot run for president in Ireland. Are you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do like a dev and just
0: kind of close your eyes and hold your nose and say the oath, no?
2: Well, I, I did use the word conscientious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, look, uh, we, we'll get to the RS actually in just a couple of minutes, but I might run through some of the, the headlines in the papers today. The Sunday Independent leads with house prices first drop for five years, 150000 fall in expensive areas, more affordable suburbs hit too, but prices still ride, rise outside the capital. And ministers to protest on the streets during Trump visit as well on the front page of. The Sunday Indo. The Sunday Times leads with Trump keen to meet Taoiseach on Dublin visit. The government is facing the prospect of angry protests on the streets of Dublin as Donald Trump visits the capital for talks with Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. Uh, the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Finnegan ministers will get lessons in acting. A bonding session for Varadkar and his colleagues is on the cards. In NUI Galway and the Sunday Business Post, Supermax Tycoon, I've been blackmailed over planning process. Uh, Pat McDonough, the tycoon behind Supermax, has revealed that he's been blackmailed several times over planning applications adding that a number of businesses had attempted to extort money from him in recent years in return for withdrawing planning applications Uh, those are just some of the stories amongst many others on the front pages Uh, but I mentioned the Auris and that is where we'll start huge amount of coverage in all the papers as there will be between now and October um, every week on the Auris Auris, various uh, hats as I said being thrown into the ring we might start though with Peter Casey's interview with Hugh O'Connell Sunday Business Post page 50 um, Gavin, this is kind of an interesting interview uh, I'm going to ask what's your take on it first of all
1: actually uh, oh, my take on the, on, on the interview or on Peter Casey on the interview because as it happens I did interview Peter Casey myself on uh, on Thursday for the aforementioned uh, Virgin Media News um, stop your, your tittering down the back of the classroom and and um, I was actually struck that I, I um, fully expected from a lot of the commentary that have been surrounding a lot of other Oris candidates that you would go in and ask Peter Casey what his understanding was of the role and for him to have very little understanding of mm. what exactly the position of the president is supposed to be. Um, I, wa- I actually I came away thinking that he did at least have quite a nuanced understanding that the president cannot change the law. The president can only change hearts and minds and that there's very limited confines yeah. in which they can do that. Um, I'm surprised that within an hour and a half of that interview that he spoke to, to Hugh O'Connell and he seems to have been um, a little bit more, I think that the general characteristic of what I get from that interview is that he's been quite evasive, that he's asked about mm. how's his health and he just goes, Grant, don't worry about it. Uh, he's asked about uh, his position on the abortion referendum or how he might vote in an upcoming referendum on the place of women in the home and he seems to be quite cagey about it. Um, he seems to have slightly mixed messages about Ireland's place in the world because he wants us to join NATO but he doesn't want us to be aligned in any war at all and yet he says that neutrality is a bit of a beaten docket. So um, it seems that he, he's perhaps it maybe it's a strategic thing or perhaps it may be that Hugh caught him on the hop in certain areas that he hadn't fully thrashed out his position but he seems to be intending to come across as quite vanilla for the time being I think
0: yeah it, particularly in relation to his business interests he seems to have not really thought through whether they should be divulged or not you know he starts by saying no and then when Hugh suggests well you know, is this not something that's important? And he he shifts in one answer to, well, I guess if everyone else is doing it, then yeah, it is important.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's the classic, uh, you know, <laughs> should you publish your tax returns? And he goes, no. And then everyone goes, but everyone else has done it. And then he goes, oh well, that might be a good idea. Yeah. But no, it's interesting for people who haven't seen the interview on on page fifteen. Um, Hugh says, do you think it's important for candidates to declare their business interests? Peter Casey says, I don't think so. You know, I don't. Hugh says, really. Katie says I don't think that it's necessarily I mean is it important if everyone else does then I suppose yeah if the same rule applies to everyone then I think yeah it probably is <laughs> yeah. like a change of position in about 10 seconds
0: mm. he does uh, Sheila on um, Gavin's first point though about understanding the nuances which came across when Gavin spoke to him like I was actually impressed some of it is wholly unimpressive <laughs> parts of that interview uh, but when he was asked about homelessness he just said well no that's not my job to talk about homelessness that's the Taoiseach's job mm. to solve the housing crisis and the yeah. homelessness crisis which
3: is nice dodge there. Yeah, let's it face is it. a nice dodge, yeah.
0: but he's kind of right. Like as in, a, a president can talk about homelessness all they want. It's not their job to start trying to solve the problem.
3: This is part of the problem when you're running for presidency in fairness, you know, in that how do you campaign for it when everybody is going to turn around and say, but that's not your job. You know, that's not what you're going to be doing. And we expect the president to outline kind of a vision and a strategy for the presidency. Yet it's very hard to do that for what is largely basically a ceremonial role, you know, and while we all acknowledge that, we expect a really kind of political, heavyweight campaign, although evidence so far just mightn't actually bear out to be that, but we do expect a kind of a real high level campaign when the reality is we know that the position won't actually allow them to fulfil any of the, any of the type of vision that mm. they outline, if you like. I think uh, the headline on or the subhead on Anne-Marie uh, Huron's piece in The Times says something like this the presidency is boring so the, but the campaigns are to die for and in reality that's the truth of it you know in that the campaigns are actually such uh, well should we know what a dogfight they are like we've been here before and we're about to see another dogfight absolutely unfolding in front of our eyes
0: Yeah we might talk about that dogfight and how it might um, Michael D might deal with it in a moment but on the idea that you know it's largely ceremonial, cer- ceremony, ceremonial blah, 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 and powerless like Mary McAleese and Mary... To say that, to suggest that they're kind of powerless is to suggest that they can't do anything. Uh, but Mary McAleese and Mary Robinson did things. You know, They mm, achieved things. They did. You know, yeah, within
3: the confines of the role. Yeah, and so I there think is a soft
0: power there.
3: Oh, without a doubt. There absolutely is and that's very important and it's to try and harness that and to, to kind of expand, to go as far as the confines of the role allow you to do so. But my point would be campaigning kind of on issues like homelessness say, and things like that is nearly, is, is defunct because you can't really do anything about that although you can outline it's where you and stand. Kind of nuance. Yeah, it is. really Really, it's, it's an extremely difficult campaign in fairness, and it would be a nightmare to be sitting down and actually strategising for this because you you can't win on any front, you know, and uh, it's very hard to come out, uh, particularly at this early stage when there are so many different candidates in there. I think you know, as the campaign develops, and okay, after September twenty sixth, we'll know exactly who's in the race then, or who potentially is in the race, and that'll give us a better idea of how this campaign is going to be fought, and for somebody who's fighting it, will give them a better idea of how to fight it and not to be changing positions in in the course of one interview a la Peter Casey. Uh, just
1: on that question of of exactly what the President can do, I think it's worth bearing in mind that if a President was running today on a platform of international humanitarian aid or foreign aid or something like that mm. we would say that's not within your purview but then remember that Mary Robinson didn't quite explicitly say that in 1990 but then through her visits to some of the famine ravaged parts of Africa she managed yeah. to divert a lot of politi- political attention to those causes and to actually achieve mm, quite so a lot point. likewise uh, Mary McAleese elected on a platform of building bridges and we thought well you know, we're not electing a minister for foreign affairs, what exactly are you going to do? And it turns out you can actually use that soft power to achieve quite a lot. So I think sometimes we almost reach for a default answer of, well, that's beyond the president's power, it's beyond their ken, it's not something you can actually do. There is an awful lot of unstated power in the resources of the office that you can use. And as long as you don't tread into the direct matter of what TDs and senators should be voting for, then you actually do have quite a lot of leeway. Uh, Michael, uh,
0: there's uh, conspiracy theories are kind of becoming uh, a feature of this and I'm not singling out any uh, candidates or anyone throwing their hat in the ring. There is one conspiracy theory being put out there that uh, Peter Casey is actually a ringer for some of the other dragons that he can go in now and he can attack Michael D and it says Sean Gallagher or Gavin Duffy or someone else having to do it.
2: Well, he he was asked. Excuse me. He was asked uh, in, in one interview um, about whether he was a stalking horse for for Gavin Duffy, and he said that that uh, his wife had said when they decided to run that uh, he wasn't to say anything nasty about Gavin Duffy, so he wasn't going to say anything. So I think that would suggest that he mightn't be a stalking horse for him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it's kind of weird, really, because we're almost in a transition with presidential elections, in that it used to be the political parties, and you depend on them to run candidates. And it was almost a proxy for you know who you supported in in terms of political parties. Last time we didn't have that really. I mean, we had uh, Sean Gallagher as the non-Fine Gael, Fine Fall candidate mm. who was trying to both be Fine fall and not. You had Michael D running, uh, and then you had Gay Mitchell who was didn't really get anything going. He was almost like. One of the uh, Monty Python four Yorkshiremen just talking about how poor his childhood was all the time. <laughs> and, 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 and so, so then you had, uh, the, these, um, all these alternative candidates, uh, emerging and getting traction. You know, you, uh, e- even though the campaign was a bit weird, you would Dana saying that somebody was trying to assassinate her when she got a puncture and so on. And so the campaign kind of became, uh, just almost like a circus. It was, it, it was, do you know what it was like? It was like a, a A game of self-destruction musical chairs with everyone just knocking their own chair over and Michael D was the only one left sitting at the end of it.
0: Yeah, there was a bit of that. Uh, Just before we move on from the presidency, because like I said, we're going to be talking about this a lot between now and October. Uh, the councils tomorrow Super Monday, Gav. Is that what they're talking about? Is, is, that, that, what uh, is that what we're doing now? That's we're what we're doing have now. Wolf yeah. Wolf
1: Blitzer sitting around the place looking at what all these councillors are saying. Hey, you come could come be in. that Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> you don't <laughs> criticise it. Um, yeah. Super Monday. I mean, w- one thing that's quite interesting actually now that Sean Gallagher has um, declared his hand is that I understand that there was actually a little bit of diary management because there are a lot of councils which could be simultaneously making their decisions tomorrow about who to nominate, and Sean Gallagher has been requested to speak at an awful lot of them, but obviously cannot by location or trilocate so he needs to pick and choose exactly which ones he's going to Um, I think we forget just how quickly this all will come about that there's quite a few tomorrow um, you know Leitrim being among them um, but that there's uh, there's only three weeks now thereabouts for all these councils to make up their minds so really the time for, for talking is over that there's going to be an awful lot of pitches and a lot of these councils are going to have to start making their decisions and I think you know th- we'll start to see the field thinning out very quickly because a lot of these councils that are meeting this week aren't going to be meeting again before se- uh, September the 26th so if you find that towards the end of this week that your your Kevin Sharkeys or your your jemo dartys perhaps aren't getting the traction that they might have liked then they'll realise just how much of an uphill battle this is and a lot of them will quietly pack up their tent and go away it'll be very interesting to see actually on the topic of the Dragons exactly uh, whether all three of them uh, are are prepared to to see it out to the bitter end although uh, reports in the papers today that Sean Gallagher effectively has his four Mm. locked down Uh, we understand Mm. that Gavin Duffy likely has uh, Meath and Louth already in his bailiwick them being his his native area anyway Um, so it'll be interesting to see exactly how many of them make that early ground and how many of them uh, just quietly decide to pack up and go home
0: What's your understanding of how the maths works at the moment? How many candidates do you think we'll end up with?
1: I think we'll likely end up with uh, Sean
0: Gallagher, Michael D. Sean Gallagher, Michael D. The, 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 the Sinn Féin
1: candidate. Uh, but I would think if Sean Gallagher is being put through the council process, then I could see something quite similar to 2011 happening, where if there are councils lined up which are mm. likely to vote for one council, as it was uh, in the time Michael D. Higgins, or whether it was um, you know Mary Davis at the time who worked up quite a lot, that they might actually uh, instruct their their supporters to facilitate other candidates. Okay, and yeah. I think by the time it comes around, we could equally have a field of six or. just as we did last time
0: All right, exciting times ahead Look, uh, we'll be talking about that like I said uh, many more times between now and October Of course, one of those ceremonial duties we talk about a president having to do is meeting and shaking hands with heads of state kings, queens, popes what have you US presidents as well which the next president will have to do in all likelihood (coughs) uh, and coverage in the papers today on the front page of a lot of the papers the business posts on the Independent Sunday Times about Trump's uh, prospective visit to Ireland As well as protests and uh, different ministers going to sit out Ministers Halligan and McGrath to boycott Trump's Irish visit on the front page of the Sunday Business Post. Uh, Michael, are we right to invite the US President here?
2: Well, it's hard hard to tell really. I don't think people want him here. Uh, it will it'll, it'll be nice to see if there was as little support for him as there was for the Pope's visit. Because I think Ireland has moved on from a country that, that just uh, worshipped the Pope and John F. Kennedy. You know, we, we are now a, essentially a European country, um, a modern pluralist democracy. Now, the institutions of state have so to catch up we, with that a little bit. we take
0: away the Sacred Heart and JFK on the wall and we put
2: up Jean-Claude Juncker. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we, well, I mean, we, we, we may end up putting Gavin Duffy, who knows? <laughs> but I, I think the difficulty with, with President Trump, it's, it's not so much with his policies. I, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think he's a fascist or a Nazi or any of the things that people are saying, but I don't think he's any ideology. I think he's an opportunist and a narcissist who has managed to blag his way into being president of America and is kind of transforming the position into being president of Twitter. And he seems to deal with um, most of, of his affairs on, online in a very inflammatory way. So I, I think the, the issue with, uh, with Donald Trump is that he is damaging just the, the, the credibility of politics itself. He's lowering the bar of what's acceptable in politics.
3: Mm. In many I mean, ways, though, he is showing people just how low the bar can go And in lots of ways, I think he could be the saving grace of politics in the long term and possibly journalism in reality (laughs) as well, because um, without journalism, uh, you wouldn't be uh, highlighting, nobody would be highlighting exactly what he he is doing, if you like, Um, and I think his attacks on the the fake news media, as he he calls mainstream media, is probably single handedly saving it in in one way, definitely in the States. Um, What's interesting to me is I know Uh, the big question is, should we roll out the red carpet for him? And the reality is we have no choice but to do so. You're rolling out the red carpet for the president of the United States, whether or not you disagree with him and the reality is we can't just say reject this visit because we don't like him. You know, it's yeah. not a good enough reason, uh, even though uh, we feel the majority of people don't like him, disagree with his policies, object to the way he carries out his business. But that's setting a precedence that we as citizens of a republic and a democracy should not be happy with. You know, uh, I don't want him here any more than yeah. anybody else I've talked in the last couple of days. I certainly hope that people do go out and protest about the visit. Uh, I certainly hope they make their voices heard uh, in that regard. I don't know that it'll make a blind bit of difference to him. Does he see protesters? You know, will they just turn into waving hands supporting well, him the, in I his head? I don't think it'll matter what their intention
1: yeah. is that he'll say that all these people turned up and that his popularity <laughs> is terrific and that look how much he's going to win the yeah. Irish vote in the midterms. Um One thing that's interesting <laughs> in that, you know, we all know that this is the result of an invitation that was extended by Enda Kenny uh, in St Patrick's Day of 2017. Um, in St Patrick's Day 2017, I was still working here in Marconi House for the station uh, one floor above and uh, I thought it was very interesting that we were invited into the Oval Office at the very start of that meeting. So it was before there had been any, you know, significant or substantial yeah. interaction between Enda Kenny and Donald Trump at all. And we weren't supposed to have a Q&A or any kind of a doorstep thing but as you do, you just fling in a question and see exactly whether he's going to answer or not. And somebody shouted, are you going to come and visit Ireland? And Trump did his usual thing of hypothesising out loud and said, as you know, I've got a golf course there and I'd love to go and see it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll be there. I met him there, you know, down in Trump and, and doing beg. Yeah. That, that's one for the memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> back to, to that Did you play um, golf with him? Uh, no, I didn't. I just met him in the pro shop. But what was very interesting about it was that it almost seemed for all the world. Now, maybe the, this whole thing had been planned, but it seemed that because Donald Trump had said out loud pre-meeting that I'm sure I'll come to Ireland it almost seemed like Andy Kenny might have been bounced into an invitation that he didn't intend to actually deliver at all that he just had to justify the interaction that was there by saying well of course if you were good enough to invite me then the right thing is that I would invite you back and you'd come to visit us whenever you like so there, there is the possibility that this whole diplomatic headache particularly at short notice because this was only communicated to the Irish government in the last four or five days yeah. that all of this just might have been done on the hoof because a reporter asked Donald Trump mm-hmm. if he was going to come and he said yeah of course I'm going to come and <laughs> yeah. just left Andy Kenny with no other option than to legitimise that ambition
0: to think that's how uh, global diplomacy works that people get bounced into it in from the ear. I,
3: Trump. I yeah. would say that Kenny was going to extend that invitation anyway. You know, it was There, well, there impossible is an to element of what you were saying,
0: Sheila. Like, of separating the dancer from the dance. You know, like as in separating the office from the, the the person.
3: Yeah, I think you have to. Like, I think in this case, you have to kind of show respect for the office that it is, even if you don't agree with the person as such. And you have to respect the fact that, you know, we have uh, what uh, we're agreeing on around ten thousand undocumented in the States at the minute, but obviously hundreds of thousands of people claiming Irish heritage in the States and as well as that what's well, the guts of 700 US companies operating out of Ireland. you know what I mean? We have huge ties with this country, with, with the United States we, we and a huge history and kind of shared history with it that we kind of see our people as deeply rooted within the building of mm. America and of the country that it is. We might be too impressed with the country it is at the minute, but, you know, hopefully somebody will come and make it great again. Um, and, you, and I say this in the context of the funeral of John McCain, of course, this week, you know, a person kind of who really stands for a lot of the values that people would have associated with the United States over the years. And, you know, it kind of, I, it just was really poignant to me kind of looking at sort of the, the tributes being paid to McCain and then, you know, looking at Trump going off, Meeting randomers in golf pro shops. Please tell the story. No,
0: he was, uh, he was here in Ireland. He actually was interviewed on News Talk. uh, Mm. Ivan spoke to him at the time. And I was down in Doombeg and myself and my wife were walking down the stairs. And our eldest was just a newborn at the time. And we walked, and I walked past this person and I said to her, Jesus, I think that was Eric Trump. Ah, imagine that there's Eric Trump Yeah, I guess it is Trump too. thought nothing of it went down to the pro shop and there he was and you, it's one of those things, oh, I blurted out before I went Donald before I, uh, <laughs> before I kind of thought like well, oh, hold on check yourself here and I just shouted his name and uh no he came over he was very much the politician oh you have a beautiful wife you have a beautiful baby you know and all that
4: oh
1: P- pinch the cheek God. yeah exactly so it's a slightly more decorum locker room talk than Donald Trump is usually exposed yeah. to yeah be. well it was in the pro shop maybe if I met him in the locker yeah. room yeah, it, m- <laughs> it might have been something
0: else I wish I had a recording on me uh, something like that look uh, that Donald Trump visit again that's something we will also be talking about uh, plenty of times uh, between now and when it eventually happens uh, I wonder will the, the meeting might happen would the meet, Would he have to come to Dublin could they hold the meeting Michael Noonan met him off the plane down in Shannon could they send I'd say, they, hoped to I'd say
3: they absolutely hope to keep him in Shannon but they won't be able to record this under it time maybe it'll be he? like
2: Boris Yeltsin maybe <laughs>
1: keep, keep him on
2: the plane yeah don't,
1: don't even just, just keep the jet on the
3: runway don't even bother. I
2: um,
1: It actually would be. A, I'd, I'd imagine there would be a lot of uh, internal, uh, you know, wrangling about whether it would be appropriate for the T-shirt to go down to Dunbeg because you'd effectively be handing money to the Trump family empire to go and meet mm. a, a visiting diplomat. But by the same token, it's very difficult for Donald Trump to come to Dublin because if he wanted to stay overnight, usually he'd stay with the ambassador. But Donald Trump has never gotten around to appointing an ambassador. That's true. So he can't stay in the Phoenix Park.
0: All right. Look, uh, plenty of coverage, I should say, as well. When I read out the front pages. Uh coverage in the UK and the front page is all about Brexit. I'm going to get to that in a couple of minutes' time but before we take a break I want to talk about the Labour leadership uh, because it gets uh, a bit in the papers as well today. The Sunday Independent page 3, Philip Ryan writing Kelly strikes out at his critics in troubled Labour. Alan Kelly is right, says Eilish O'Hanlon, without real change Labour is dead. Uh, Hugh O'Connell though writing in the Business Post Kelly won't table no confidence motion against Howland as he backs off assault. Gavin, uh, my kind of interpretation of Alan Kelly's interview on Tip FM, we talked about Enda Kenny getting bounced into offering an invite, (laughs) was that, uh, you know, Alan Kelly has been quite obviously talking about Brendan Howland for some time. This wasn't
1: an improvised heave. No,
0: No, it wasn't, but it did sound like he kind of got bounced into... Actually, naming him on Tip FM that he was on his local radio station, and it kind of came across as a formal uh, challenge when really he wasn't ready for that yet. I,
1: I don't know about that. I think the fact that that Alan Kelly had been, uh, you know, teeing up attention for this and had been tweeting to say that I'm going to be talking on Tip.fm FM about a mm-hmm. wide range of issues several hours in advance. I, I think he knew what he was doing, and indeed, you've probably been talking about them over the summer. That Alan Kelly has penned quite a few opinion pieces for Sunday papers, talking about the difficulties with Labour's current direction and leadership. So I don't think this was something that he might have been uh, bounced into. At all. One thing that's interesting though, uh, with respect to, to Alan Kelly uh, saying that he's not going to put down a motion of no confidence, um, this might be a bit technical, but um, there's an, a world of difference between contesting a leadership election if an election is happening and actually forcing one or or, getting Brendan Howland out of the job to begin with. Um, If you were to have a a motion of no confidence within the parliamentary party of which there are only 11 in Labour anyway um, it wouldn't be binding at all. The only way to formally kick Brendan Howland out of the Labour leadership is to have two thirds of Labour's central council which is predominantly made up of constituency reps. So what you'd actually need to do is that you'd need to get 35 or so out of the 40 constituencies to pointedly say we don't want Brendan Howland there anymore. That might be why Alan Kelly isn't going down the motion of no confidence Route because he actually wants to harness all those councillors that we were hearing about Mm. who are actually a little bit anxious that 3% means those councillors may never aspire to anything more Well you don't want to
0: be the man who stabs Caesar you know Brutus didn't become the next emperor
1: no and and, you know the whole thing about uh, you know he who wields the sword never wears the crown so perhaps he could use an ally to do this but of course we all remember that when Brendan Howland was running for the Labour leadership two years ago after Joan Burton stood down uh, that Alan Kelly couldn't get a single person to sign his nomination paper that he only needed one other signatory to get on the ballot Mm. and none of the other six Labour TDs would actually do so so uh, I suspect that within Leinster House he is still cutting an equally isolated figure but the question is whether he can get the councillors on side to actually do anything about it I was at a
3: mistake oh
2: sorry. sorry sorry
1: Go ahead, Michael no, uh, well, well I, I suppose look we've got, we're
2: in an era now it's almost like football managers they were in an era when since say if you go back to Gary Fitzgerald Charlie Hawhey Dick Spring you had party leaders that would be there for a long time and you, you, you got used to them and, yeah. and, and they were steady you leaders. could lose an election and yeah, stay in the job exactly yeah. now, you don't have that anymore really since then you, we've only really had John Bruton uh, Bertie Hearn and Enda Kenny they're the only three that have lasted for for a long time. The, the, since spring, the Labour leaders only get a few years, you know. So I, I think he's probably, you know, coming close <laughs> to his, his termination of his, his time period. Anyway, and then the other things, I, I think the big issue is Labour itself is possibly gone. You know, if you look at the last election, if you look at not not just the fact that they lost seats, you look at who they lost. They lost most of their secular progressive candidates. They lost most of their women candidates. They lost most of the candidates that had just been elected in the previous election. You know, so so the ones that are left are really the the ones that were just there because they had that long term, uh, you know, Support base in a constituency, so I, I mean I'm not sure whether Labour's going to survive this in the long term, Sheila.
3: Yeah. yeah, I think that's a huge. That's a very good point. You know, there's they are struggling for relevance, and that's a very bad thing to be struggling for in a political market. They've been squeezed on all sides, if you like, particularly by Sinn Fein, but also then by the people before profits and those groups as well. And it's it's, it's they they have without a doubt been been looking for a position, and I um, I think it's the the former Clare TD Michael McNamara, He's been quoted in the papers today, you know, saying, like, what do they stand for anymore? I think that's a really, you know, it's a good point, And that's kind of nearly the, the the quintessential problem for them. You know, I don't know that Alan Kelly is the answer to that, to their problems, to be, to be fair. You know, he's very strong, he's a very good communicator and very able dealer and everything. Um, but he does have an issue, he seems to have an issue kind of connecting with people from his own party. As Gavin pointed out, he couldn't even muster up one person mm. to support him. I, I think that was a bad call on Labour's behalf. They should have allowed him to contest it. They shouldn't have had a coronation that time. That that would have sort of aired a lot of the issues within the whole party and allowed them maybe to have the, the necessary conversations that they need to have to build up F- from the point they were then, which was I think at 6% or something like that. Now they're at 3 Like It's a phenomenally diff- difficult position for them.
0: Yeah, look, on that note, we'll take a quick break. Uh, Gavin, Sheila, and Michael are staying with us back in a couple of moments. On the record, on, on News Talk. You are listening to On the Record, Kieran Cuthey, with you until one o'clock. Five three one six is the text number that will cost you thirty cents. You can get me on Twitter as always at Kieran Cuthey. Gavin Riley, Sheila Riley, and Michael Nugent are with me in studio. I mentioned earlier the the front pages of the UK papers. I have them here in front of me. The Sunday Telegraph: May I won't surrender to Brussels. Prime Minister's pledge on Brexit talks as leading Tory moderates abandoned support for checkers. Uh, the front page of the Express: PM, I'll stop second vote. Exclusive poll reveals growing Brexit fears. And the Mail on Sunday: PM rumbles Boris plot to oust or Johnson's score is Chuck Checker's campaign to spearhead move on number 10. Lots of coverage uh, in all the UK papers and indeed in some of the Irish papers as well about Brexit. That uh, October summit which was the final, final deadline is now going to be the, well it looks like the penultimate deadline. Penultimate (laughs) deadline. (laughs) The ultimate deadline uh, November, possibly December or even January. Uh, But look, this is something that actually was talked about on the Andrew Marr show on BBC this morning. Uh, They had an interview with the former Brexit secretary David Davis. Uh, He resigned saying the British government is giving too much away too easily in the brexit talks here's some of that exchange
5: in my view uh, the chequers proposal it's not a deal we shouldn't call it the chequers deal it's the chequers proposal uh, is actually almost worse than being in i mean we will be under the rule of the european union with respect to all of our manufactured goods and agri-foods uh, that's a really serious concession what about Take back control doesn't work. Uh, that actually leaves us in a position where they dictate our future uh, rules with us out have, without without us having a say at all. So if it's you, a it's if a if you're going to deal. vote against it. And that's
6: mm-hmm. even if there are no further compromises. Yeah. Even if it's as it stands now, if you all vote against it, chances are she won't get it through the House of Commons. Yeah. Now, I suppose what she would say mm-hmm. is the trouble is, David, that your your proposal, what you called on this very chair uh, Canada plus 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 wouldn't work either because it does not resolve the border problem in Northern Ireland it would break the Belfast Agreement and there really isn't a way around that. Well two things I mean firstly uh,
5: it's it's still possible Tusk talked about a free trade deal a long time ago now I think it's a year ago but certainly early on in this process uh, secondly, um, I do think—I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm free to talk more freely now than, than, mm. than perhaps when I was a minister. I do Hope think so. we've—I oh, yeah, do think we've heavily overemphasised the problem uh, on the Northern Ireland border. Northern Ireland border is a border already. It's got a VAT border. It's got an excise border. It's got a customs. It's got a, uh, a, 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 a security border, and it works perfectly well with careful cooperation between both sides. The only thing that will be added if we've got a tariff-free agreement which is what we're after. The only thing that will be added is rules of origin of goods coming into Northern Ireland that might go into the south. We can control that. There are only six ports in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. This is a much more straightforward issue to deal with if we choose to, if we put the political will behind it. We and okay. the Irish Republic, the two together.
0: Yeah, now that was former Brexit Secretary David Davis on and the Andrew Marr Show.
4: Uh, also on was the UK Trade Secretary, Liam Fox. Take a listen. What our investors are saying is, How can we get the best um, that allows Britain Mm -hmm. to maintain access to that European market but still allows Britain in the case of Japan to be able to consider our wider trading involvement. But as David Davis quite properly said this is not an agreement
6: this is a proposal from the British side at this stage which then has to go into negotiation and sure as eggs is eggs there will be further compromises demanded from Britain and they will include things like the Irish backstop in particular but also potentially more influence of the European
4: Court. As a long-time Brexiteer yourself, could you swallow further compromises? Well, as a Unionist I can't swallow anything that changes the relationship between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. And as a Brexiteer I want to make sure we get control over our money and our borders as well, which is why I can't accept the Nick Bowles EEA argument, uh, for example. Mm. What what I think we've got a slight danger of doing here is of taking an over-British-centric view of our negotiation with the European Union. Elements of the EU, the Commission, for example, have said very clearly um, that they regard what Britain is proposing as countering some of the institutional red lines that exist in the EU. They will find that this challenges their orthodoxy in many ways. The Germans have complained about the splitting of goods and services. Again, for example, so I think that we have to understand this is a negotiation, and it doesn't help the government's position.
6: Both sides are going to give give some, so we are going to give further compromises. We have already
4: set out what we what we think is a reasonable position for the United Kingdom to have in our future trading relationship with Europe. Now, Mm. the position that we are in is that we are waiting for the European Union to come back to us with their view, which we will get in October. Now, if they think that what we proposed goes too far for Europe. If they think that we are proposing things that damage their institutional red lines, for example, it's up to them to come back to us with proposals that they think are workable, including for Northern Ireland and Ireland.
0: Yeah, that was Liam Fox, the UK Trade Secretary on the Andrew Marr show as well this morning, just in the last hour. He said a couple of interesting things there. Gavin, he said that they're guilty of having an overly British view yeah. of this. In I just thought that kind of stood out for me. Yeah surely they should have a British view of it
1: (laughs) well no of course they should have a British view of it because they are you know they have to only negotiate on their own side but it's interesting that they are now perhaps beginning to zoom out a bit and try to examine how things look from the other side and how certain things that they're proposing do in fact run up against the whole you know the ethos of the European Union and how things can't be cherry picked off so it's interesting to see that perhaps they might be having a slightly out of body experience and beginning to understand what it looks like outside of their their own living room but then he goes
0: back to say you know of course if we suggest something it's yeah, unworkable that it, for it, them. It's up to them, them yeah. then to come back with something that works for us. Yeah, but well, it's it's not. It's, you can
1: just say no. Uh, and this <laughs> this idea as well that oh, we're waiting to hear back on, on from the European Union and what our proposals are th- they've already been. By and large, shut down anyway. Um, one thing that's interesting, though, about the first clip, the David Davis one, is that he was already talking about how there are already certain infrastructure and certain checks between the Republic and the North, and there are, to a point, not quite to the degree that he was saying, but there are also currently checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain for certain agricultural and sanitary services, and there are two different energy markets, and there are two different VAT systems, among plenty of other things, so... You know, it's not as if that suddenly the the, the European or the the United Kingdom would be fractured off now and forever more if there was just slightly more checks and balances between these sort of things. Ultimately, though, they still haven't gotten to grips with the fundamental truth that you have to have customs frontiers and customs checks mm. if you are not part of a customs arrangement
0: yeah it's mm. back to that narrative that you know is, that yeah. that the Brexiteers seem to be pushing and have been for some time why are we all getting fixated on this backstop yeah
3: and as well as that the border where you're seeing them to try to diminish the, the, the point of the border all the time you know and to kind of uh, belittle that point and Reese Moggs as well uh, Jacob Rhys Mogg was doing it last week too you know and that's that's been the narrative continuously recently uh, Boris Johnson led the, the charge on that from a couple of months back you know uh, making it out to be like this little piddly little border, and sure, it, mat- it matters little. You know how we, how we end up. I mean, the reality is, and I see, live, does, I live on this border. Ma- it does
0: matter little, though, to uh, Boris Johnson. It and does, Jacob yeah, because Brice he doesn't <laughs> have a clue. I
3: mean, if the reality of it, you know, and for people, I mean, I live on this border. My the next parish to me is in Fermanagh. so, you know, for the likes of us, kind of down there, we we're looking at this going. There is no alternative. We we would see that. There is nothing that says we won't have a hard border, and still that would be the position from a lot of people down where I'm from, because we've seen nothing that shows that you can, you cannot, you can't allow the British to proceed the way they're going to proceed. Um, I think they're going to crash out of this. This is how this is going to end next March. I don't really foresee an agreement in November. Maybe, maybe, maybe there could be a last minute deal on it, but uh, it would be. Detrimental to the Tories to their position, unless May calls an election on on the on the strength of it. You just can't see how they will progress without having to just crash out of the whole thing, and that will leave us with a position where we will have that hard border, uh, where you will have the customs. Mm. Uh, uh, boxes back in place, uh, and where literally we will be living on the edge of Europe. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for the country as a whole, for Ireland as a whole? And we've, we've kind of discussed this ad nauseum over the last couple of months, if you like, or the last couple of years at this stage. And I think the frustrating point is really that essentially is are still in a situation where they're all squabbling over in the Tory party and as a result of yeah. that we are still totally. not actually getting anywhere in relation to this. The,
1: the best uh, metaphor that I've ever heard about any of this is the idea that Theresa May has so many nooses around her neck that eventually one of them is going to trap her. And it was interesting, you, you read the front page of the Mail on Sunday, this idea of the PM rumbling a Boris Plot to oust her, mm. that apparently the uh, Australian-born election guru who masterminded uh, Donald... Uh, or (laughs) It's Freudian slip. Uh, Boris Johnson's uh, (laughs) London campaigns. (laughs) Uh, for 2008, 2013. Uh, the guy who masterminded that was now about to run a nationwide campaign against the checkers deal which only just goes to show how febrile the whole thing is and we, we perhaps think that things have quietened down because we haven't heard anything for two months. It's because everyone was on holiday but nothing has actually progressed in the meantime. No and, and bear
3: in mind that the Tory party is the Tory party conference is at the end of September so she has to get through that and that's just going to be I think as somebody describes in one of the papers today, a beauty pageant for all those who oppose her. You know? So internally I mean, the Tories are just in massive conflict yeah. and you have that kind of playing out in the background of this massive 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 issue facing the the British and indeed the Europeans. It's it's totally frustrating to be watching. I'll leave you with little faith in politicians. (laughs) Coverage in
0: the Irish papers about Colin McCarthy. The problem is Mrs May panders to trade fantasies of the Brexiteers. Michael, anything stand out for you in particular? Well, that
2: particular article I think is very useful because it's not only the reality of the negotiations with Europe that's catching up on the the Tory party and it is the Tory party. It's not Britain really. This Mm. is an internal matter for the Tory party. Uh, It's also... That uh, the reality of trying to form this mythical alternative trading block is just not going to happen. You know, I mean that that article by by Cal it, it it shows some of the countries, for example, that they're trying to sell it in with Theresa May wandering around Africa countries where, where like dancing like, around Kenya dancing around Africa. <laughs> like, oh, like, oh, I don't you know, want to sneer at her dancing. I like, thought she was very good. Like, like where <laughs> compared to We've me, for example. example. Yeah. But in in uh, but like Kenya, where where, where she's in, you know that that Britain's exports to Kenya in a year are the same as their exports to Ireland in a week. You know, so they're they're trying to pretend that they're building up something that just isn't there and eventually it'll just it'll catch up on them reality does catch up on, on, on politics eventually
0: yeah look i want to talk about uh, religion and schools and declan rice and a couple of other things we have to take a break in a few minutes but we just have time uh, to touch on what we're talking about brexit talk about irexit as well it's on the front page of the sunday times colin coyle writing about
1: the new freedom party gavin who are they uh, the New Freedom Party is uh, made up of uh, some anti-establishment figures such some as Some of the old heads Yeah, former Irish ambassador uh, Ray Bassett uh, former mm. UCD professor Ray Kinsella ah, yeah. uh, Herman Kelly who uh, is uh, a former journalist and who is now head of communications at the EFDD party in Brussels who is effectively then uh, Nigel Farage's uh, press officer um, It's going to be launched in the, the Regency Hotel next weekend or formerly the Regency Hotel now called the Bonington uh, They are effectively arguing that because of all of the difficulties that will be created by the perhaps inevitable no deal and all the border infrastructure that the most uh, simplifying thing to do is for Ireland to simply follow them out now that might be fair to a certain point uh, I think we'd have to think very, 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 very carefully about whether we would want to replicate all of the uh, international uh, reputational and trading and economic and diplomatic damage that we have just seen Britain volunteer into by deciding to do exactly the same thing just for the sake of a border. I mean, I, not to, to, to downplay the importance of the border, but just as Britain is now trying to forge trade links with other Commonwealth countries to make up for the enormous uh, chunk of their nose mm. that they're cutting mm. off themselves, I think we would be a little Bit foolhardy to try and make things easier with a big trading partner at the extent of isolating 26 others.
0: I, it would solve your border problem with your neighbouring parish there. No, Shayla. it
3: wouldn't really, to be would honest. I think Gavin is right. It would, uh, It would. you know, when you look at we could rejoin
0: the Commonwealth, we could do all these things. We yeah, could, so
3: that would be fantastic. What'd go wrong? What could go wrong? We could negotiate a trade block with Africa, which uh, the, the, the type of countries. Think that of say. all those green beans <laughs>
0: from Kenya we could be eating. Be,
3: it, what could go wrong? What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? In a way, though, I think, you know, they, our ex at the Freedom Party you know it gives us it, it kind of brings a sort of a, a, new, a different dimension to the EU discussions that we have in you know it, out there you know in that we do have a very if you like you know there's always a very positive narrative about the EU and I think there's no, no harm in discussing the negative aspects of the EU and the things that need to be changed about uh, change within the EU and the bureaucracy and all of those issues um, and there's no harm that there would be somebody debating those and calling for a debate on those issues to be honest. Michael?
2: I just think it's isolationist nonsense. I think we live in an interdependent world and, you know, just get used to it. Uh, maybe, Maybe they'd be better off spending their time running for president. Oh yeah, maybe they
1: would, yeah. <laughs> there, there is a slight chicken and egg thing though because I've seen some some response already that people saying that there's 92% uh, of Irish people in, in favour yeah. of the EU, which is fair enough, but that might be because there isn't really any significant political party arguing for the, mm. for the counterpoint. So maybe in fact it might be worth having a conversation even though I don't think many people would agree with the outcome.
0: All right, Gavin, Sheila and Michael staying with us. We'll be back after this quick break. On the Record. On the Record. Hong News Talk. You're listening to On the Record, Kieran Goddahi with you until one o'clock. Gavin Riley, Sheila Riley and Michael Nugent are all with me in studio. We've been talking through various stories in today's papers. Uh, there's the story uh, on the Sunday Times and page four, Colin Coyle, church groups to owe 281 million to abuse fund. It's the church, an unrelated story though about the church, kind of in religion we want to talk about next. And it's been in the papers over the last couple of days. And, and Michael, I know you were keen to talk about this and it's, uh, I, I was reading it yesterday in the Times Irish edition about the, um, the 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 issue about teaching religion and opting out of religion in ETBs. These are the state-run secondary schools. Now, before we get into the problem, you might explain to me, like I understand, saying if you're in a voluntary school, if you're in the CBS or a presentation or whatever it happens to be fairly straightforward, you've got faith formation classes that most of us had when we were in those schools right the way through. If you were in an ETB, like the what were the texts or whatever it happened to be in your Town, do they have faith formation classes or is it just the kind of the broad generic religious
2: education class? Well, we've a, a unique education system in Ireland where the state doesn't run education. It cedes control of the schools to private bodies mostly. And so they're mostly religious bodies. So they would have, uh, you know, a Catholic ethos yeah. in 90% of, of the, the cases. Now, the ETB schools, which are they're the old vocational education mm. committees, education and training boards they are now. And essentially, they're supposed to be the state-run alternative. But some of those schools have deeds of trust negotiated with the Catholic Church where they're obliged to give faith formation. As as well as the state curriculum, they're they're obliged to give faith formation, religious instruction, and religious worship. I see. Now, now they were historically. Because Ireland was a much more homogeneous country years ago, they had interpreted that as just doing it for everybody, you know, give, giving faith formation to everybody in the school. But what's happened now is, is the department is telling no, you can't interpret it that way anymore. What you have to do is ask beforehand: Do parents and children want to do faith formation? And if they do, you can do it for them. But if they don't, you have to give them an alternative subject an, al- an alternative curriculum subject. Okay. So, so this that's is the problem it's now. This is the problem that, that, that they've been told to do that, by a ministerial directive and the schools and the teachers unions and the Religion Teachers Association are just refusing to do it which is astonishing To, to for, for state-run schools to defy a departmental directive as to how to uh, run the schools is just is just unheard of.
0: Now, uh, that... Opposition to it, though, is, according to the, the TUI, anyway, their line is that, look, this is to do with resources. It's nothing to do with religion. It's just that if you want us to put on an alternative subject, you're talking about having another classroom available other teachers available and huge timetabling issues we can't do it
2: yeah and that would be the case if that was what was being asked but it's not they're not being asked to add an extra subject into the curriculum what they're being told is find out before you do the curriculum what the parents and children want and then design a curriculum around those desires in the same way as, as you know if some kids want to do French and some want to do German you just design the curriculum around it so it's a, it's a, it's a reallocation of the existing resources now there may well be cases in which Uh, you know, it would be difficult in certain schools and that would have to be addressed and and overcome on a case-by-case basis. But that's not what the teachers' unions are doing. They're not saying we'll try to implement it and in cases where we can't, we'll have to negotiate something. They're just saying we just won't implement it which is not we're going to instruct our members to not even try to implement it. And that's the important thing. It's not just a policy issue. It's breaching the human and constitutional rights of parents and children to freedom of conscience. You have a constitutional right to opt out of religion. In the same way, if there were schools that were actively teaching children that there's no God, and people wanted to opt out, people would immediately realise that you can't just say we're not going to implement that, we're going to teach children, there's no God.
0: And that directive was to take effect as of now, the new academic year. But what the situation, as you understand it, is in most of these schools, if someone says they want to opt out, it's just going to be that thing of sitting in the back of the class and just do your Yeah, or, or
3: sitting a in, or we, we, in a different
2: we class met right? the, We met the Department of Education along with that's Atheist Ireland met the Department of Education when they were putting it together along with we have allies in the Ahmadi Muslim community and the Evangelical Alliance of Ireland who are also discriminated against on this basis so the three of us were meeting the department as they were putting that directive together we got the assurances that it would happen we got the assurance that they would stand up to any uh, rebellions against it now we're meeting them again It's really an unlikely alliance
0: isn't it? I imagine yourselves and the Islamic community and the evangelical community Well this end. is
2: the essence of secularism of separation of church and state you know we can respect that we ha- have different beliefs we don't have to respect the content of our different beliefs we have very different worldviews, but we respect the right to freedom of religion and belief and we will work together for freedom of religion and belief we, we also went over incidentally when Pakistan was being questioned by the United Nations on their human rights record Atheist Ireland the Evangelical Alliance of Ireland and the Ahmadi Muslims went over together to speak out for religious minorities in Pakistan who can't speak out for themselves because they're persecuted. So, so there's a lot, there's an awful lot of, of, of uh, cooperation between secular groups that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh,
0: Sheila, it strikes me that a way to deal with this that wouldn't need more resources is to always have your religion class at the start of school or the end of school, and then kids could just come in later, go home early. Yeah,
3: or, I mean, not have them there at all, really. You know, it's just uh, the other aspect of it, you know, to leave it up to the parents if they want to... Um Uh, do some faith, you know, if they want to bring their children up in a faith, that they would do that within their own time or or Sunday school or Saturday school or whatever if they are really serious about it. Of course we we won't actually see that happen I don't think in a while but um, I I have, it's. it's, I was talking to Michael about this beforehand because my understanding of it was uh, that there was a bit of hostility to the directive in terms of that it had been issued in, in February and that that just a lot of people felt did not give them time to get their ducks in a row for this September, and that it was just kind of issued as a uh, sorted out, and basically that they weren't given the resources or uh, the detail that they felt that schools felt they needed in order to um, to actually implement this. Now, uh, Michael is right in a way; he says that you know that's just kind of just a dodge. Essentially, is what what you were saying, Michael. Uh, and there certainly is a point with that, but I, I think myself. Um, it is, you know, that it's in the school's interest to sort something something out here in regards to this, um, and to facilitate this in some way um, for people. But possibly there's a scenario where the minister should have and the department should have done a bit more talking to the actual schools before they implemented the directive to actually make it work. Now. Michael might. Yeah, Mike, no, Mike, It's they, two years in the office. Yeah, they, they've been flagging this for two yeah, years, okay. so they
2: do know about it. And, and I mean, certainly, look, if Atheist Ireland and the Evangelical Alliance and the Amadees were discussing it with the department mm. beforehand, the teachers' unions could have been doing that if they'd wanted to.
0: Uh, uh, Gavin, it strikes me as well that the church knows that you'll have know, people maybe, I suppose like, like Michael who feel very strongly about this, mm. people who feel very strongly about the f- faith formation who are in <laughs> favour of it. And then you have a huge cohort of people kind of in between who will send their kids to the local national school. They maybe don't, I suppose, invest a huge amount of thought in what the ethos of the school or whether it's an ETB, a voluntary school, uh, an Educate Together,
1: it's yeah, non-denomination. they are entirely for convenience.
0: And, yeah, and, and they go through and they do the sacraments and they don't really think about it. And the church knows that if they actually had to stop and think about it, probably a lot less of them would be going to First Holy yeah, Communion. Yeah, which
1: might be then a, li- a little bit why it's, it's so difficult to do this because as Michael identified at the start, the state controls uh, almost zero uh, schools, either primary or secondary, with the exception of these ETB secondary schools, mm. it controls virtually none around the country and it cedes the patronage in almost almost universally to the Catholic Church and therefore you can't really mm. expect the Catholic Church not to use its own facility to try and spread its own faith. Um, one practical thing that, that uh, I was kicking around with Michael in, in the, the um boardroom before we came in was that a lot of the time it actually depends on whether the secondary school whether it's able to deliver this or not depends on at what year they start they stop uh, prescribing the subjects that you do because as you might know in some schools after first year you might do 11 or 12 subjects for first year then you're told to pick and choose you can either do French or German and therefore they're timetabled at the same time so that you can't do both you do one or the other Um, but there are other schools that don't get into that until after the junior search and the one that I went to prescribed all the subjects that you took for the junior and it was only for the leaving search then that they you didn't get a choice for the junior search. no no, not in my school. No, just a, just the way that individual schools mm-hmm. are. So if you're going to a school that prescribes your subjects the whole way up to junior cert, then there isn't really any uh, capability for that school as it stands to decide that okay, we're actually going to off- offer an opt out for religion where some other subject is offered in its place. So that you can, it's almost like a modular thing where you can choose either to do religion or to go and have some other school uh, subject uh, prescribed situation, t- mm. which is exactly what Richard Bruton wants. So in in fairness, I mean, even though it might have been kicked around for for. Couple of years before it was actually announced in February of this year, you can understand to a certain point why schools who might adopt that kind of structure would find it very difficult to simply then decide that religion is this modular thing that you can prescribe some other subject in its absence. It's a, it's a more difficult thing to do than with a couple of months' notice.
2: Well, that's, a, that's an argument for dealing with it on a case, to ca- a case by case basis. If there are schools where those issues arise, you deal with it there. It's not an argument for setting up the independent republic of the ETBs who are going to refuse to implement it at all. <coughs> you know, they certainly could implement it in the majority of schools. And we're we're going to be meeting the department again about this, by the way. If if anybody listening uh, has a child in an E2B school or is attending an E2B school, if you want to let Atheist Ireland know at humanrightsatheist.ie what's happening in your local school, we can bring that to the attention of the department when we're meeting them in September.
0: All right, look, I I just want to talk about, before we finish up today, about Declan Rice, because I mentioned him already. um, Great musician.
1: Loved his first album. uh, Oh, yeah, the amount of times I've heard this uh, (laughs)
0: during the week. Yeah, exactly. Damien. I said it myself, I think, at one stage uh, on The Breakfast Show during the week. Kevin Caban is writing in the mail on Sunday today. I know better than most that identity is important in a team. Uh, Kevin has been very strong, uh, very vocal in his views on... Declan Rice uh, I disagreed with them during the week uh, here in News Talk some of them I thought they were a little over the top uh, Michael what's your view on this do you have any sympathy for Declan Rice
2: well I do absolutely yeah and I think it's, uh, the one thing I'll say about Kevin Kilbane it's a good job that he wasn't uh, chairing the Belfast Agreement talks or we wouldn't really have gone <laughs> anywhere I mean you know, of all countries we must know in Ireland that people have overlapping national and cultural and ethnic and religious identities You I know. don't know do we I think a lot of people here have a very Simplistic view. They shouldn't. Yeah, I, I think, think we've moved on. I think most most people do. I mean, I mean, I mean look, mm. look, and, and also even in terms of the football side of it. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize in the football side of it is that years ago this wasn't uncommon. Some of the best players in the world played for more than two countries. Puskas played for Hungary and for Spain. Uh, yeah, De Stefano, Stefano play, yeah. played for three countries. He played for Argentina and Colombia and Spain. And uh, uh, Luis Motti played in two World Cup finals for two different countries. You know, so, so this idea of, of having to be stuck down to just your, your, your passport is, is, is quite a, a recent thing.
0: Sheila, yeah. is it an English thing though? Like if it was a different, if it was a different nationality, <laughs> is it that we just don't like to overlap Irish and English? Possibly,
3: you know, it could be, but in reality we should be more accepting of that than than perhaps a lot because we have such an overlap yeah. with the UK, within, with the UK, and you have so many uh, players of Irish roots, you know, grown up in London and or in the UK, and then that we expect them to kind of don the green jersey sort of when it when it suits it is a. It's simplistic to be honest you know I have huge sympathy for Declan Rice and for the position that he's been put in and I kind of am mindful of the fact that he's 19 years of age he's essentially at the start of his career Uh, it seems to me that a lot of the criticism directed towards him has been totally and utterly unfair and insensitive and unrealistic about the position that he is in
1: To borrow a little bit of a parallel there are plenty of people uh, like myself who weren't uh, you know born and bred Dubliners who now live here I I don't have kids but I've already had to reconcile myself to the idea if, if I ever do have kids my kids would identify as Dubs I'm a meath man i find Abhorrent, but there's nothing I can do about it. But on the same can token, if I
0: move my kids back to Kilkenny that's how I dealt with that. That's commitment. That's commitment. Um,
1: But you know, I like if, if county identities are this kind of woolly thing that can dilute over one generation, we have to accept that national identities are a little bit woolly too. And I think that perhaps some of the reason why we're, we're a little bit uh, peeved about this idea that Declan Rice might leave us is because we're so used to having people from other jurisdictions come for us. We've had James McCarthy deciding to you know knock Scotland on the head. We've had plenty of people coming from the north to declare for the Republic. Oh, we're yeah. not used. To having people going the other way and I think that's why we're a little bit sore about
0: like it Like how many of Jack's army grew up dreaming yeah. about playing for the Republic of Ireland Look unfortunately we're out of time but Texas 53106 30 cent what do you know about do you think about that issue because uh, Richie McCormick is going to be here and we'll chat about that amongst other things in a little while uh, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News Sheila Riley, head of digital with Iconic News and Michael Nugent chairman of Atheist Ireland amongst many other things thank you all very much for coming in to me this morning back after this quick break
3: on the record. On the
0: record. News Talk.